Chapter 8 The Wicked Heart Set to Do Evil Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 This verse clearly infers that the present is not a state of rewards and punishments in which people are treated according to their character and conduct. This fact is not indeed affirmed, but it is assumed, as it is also everywhere throughout the Bible. Everybody knows that this life is not a state of present rewards and punishments. The experience and observation of everyone testifies to this fact with convincing power. Therefore, it is entirely proper that the Bible would assume it as a known truth. Everyone who reads the Bible must see that many things in it are assumed to be true, and that these are precisely those things that everyone knows to be true, and that no one could know more certainly even if God had affirmed them on every page of the Bible. In the case of this particular truth, every person knows that he is not punished as he is deserved to be in the present life. Everyone sees the same thing in the case of his neighbors. The psalmist was so astounded by the obvious injustice of things in this world, as between the various circumstances of the righteous and of the wicked, that he was greatly bothered until, he said, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Psalm 73, 17. It is also assumed in this passage that all people have a common heart by nature. One general fact is stated of them all, and in this way they are assumed to have a common character. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. This is also stated in Genesis 6-5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the common method in which God speaks of sinners in his word. He also assumes that by nature they have the same character. The text also shows what the moral type of the sinner's heart is. It is fully set to do evil. We must pause here a moment to inquire what is meant in our passage by the term heart. It is obvious that this term is used in the Bible in various shades of meaning. Sometimes it is used for the conscience, as in the passage that declares, If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, 1 John 3.20, and may be expected even more to condemn us. Sometimes the term is used for the intelligence, but here most evidently for the will, because this is the only capability of the mind that can be said to be set, fixed, bent, or determined upon a given course of voluntary action. The will is the capability that sets itself upon a chosen course. 
Therefore, in our text, the will must be meant by the term heart, for otherwise no understandable sense can be put upon the passage. But in what direction and to what purpose is the will of wicked people fully set? The answer is that the will of wicked people is fully set to do evil. God's Word solemnly declares this. Let it be said by way of explanation that this does not imply that people do evil for the sake of the evil itself. It does not imply that sinning, considered as disobedience to God, is their direct purpose. The drunkard does not drink because it is wicked to drink, but he drinks regardless of it being wicked. He drinks for the present good it promises, not for the sake of sinning. It is the same with the person who tells lies. His purpose is not to break God's law, but to get some good to himself by lying. Yet he tells the lie despite God's prohibition. His heart may become fully set upon the practice of lying whenever it is convenient for him, and in pursuit of the good he hopes to gain by his lie. It is in vain that God labors by fearful prohibitions and penalties to discourage him from his course. It is the same with stealing, adultery, and other sins. We are not to suppose that people set their hearts upon these sins out of love of pure wickedness, but they do wickedly for the sake of the good they hope to gain by the wickedness. The immoral person would probably be glad if it were not wicked to gratify his passion, but wicked though it is, he sets his heart to do it. Why did Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit? because they saw it was beautiful, and they were told it would make them wise. Therefore, for the good they hoped to gain, and despite God's prohibition, they took it and ate. I know it is sometimes said that sinners love sin for its own sake, out of a pure love of sin as sin, with a natural delight, just as wolves love flesh, simply because it is disobedience to God but this is not true, certainly not in many cases. The simple truth is that people do not set their hearts upon the sin for its own sake, but they set their hearts upon sinning for the sake of the good they hope to get from it. Notice especially now the language. The heart is fully set in them to do evil. One person is greedy. He sets his heart upon getting rich, honestly if he can, but any way that he can. He wants to get more money by honest means if possible, but he intends to be sure to get it. Another person is ambitious. The love of reputation fills and fires his soul, and therefore he might become very polite and very gracious in his manners, and sometimes very religious. If religion is popular, but completely selfish, and nonetheless so for being so very religious. Selfishness takes on a thousand forms and types, but each and all are sinful, for the whole mind should give itself up to serve God 
and to perform every duty as revealed to the reason. What did Eve do? She gave herself up to gratify her taste for knowledge, as well as for the good of self-indulgence. She consented to believe the lying spirit who told her it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Genesis 3.6 She thought this must be very important. It was also apparently good for food, and her appetite became greatly excited. The more she looked, the more excited she became. And now what should she do? God had forbidden her to eat it. Would she obey God, or would she obey her own excited appetite? Despite God's command, she ate the fruit. Was that a sin? Many people would think it was only a very small sin, but it was real rebellion against God, and he could not do otherwise than visit it with great displeasure. It is the same everywhere. To yield to the demands of appetite and passion against God's requirements and demands is grievous sin. All people are bound to fear and obey God, no matter how much self-denial and sacrifice it may cost. Selfishness often acquires a religious side. At the beginning, the mind may be powerfully affected by some of the great and stirring truths of the gospel but it soon takes an entirely selfish view, caring only to escape punishment and to make religion a matter of gain. It is astonishing to see how in such cases the mind completely misconstrues the intent of the gospel, completely losing sight of the great fact that it seeks to eradicate man's selfishness and draw out his heart into pure benevolence. Making this profound mistake, it perceives the whole gospel system as a scheme for gratification. You can see this demonstrated by the view that some people take of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which they imagine is attributed to them while they are living in sin. That is, they suppose that they secure complete exemption from the penalty of violating the law and even have the honors and rewards of full obedience while they still have all the self-indulgences of a life of sin. This is horrible. Were ever Roman Catholic indulgences worse than this? Examine such a case thoroughly, and you will see that selfishness is at the bottom of all the religion there is in it. The person was worldly before and is devout now, but he is devout for the same reason that he was worldly. The selfish heart forms the basis of both systems. The same goals are sought, and they are sought in the same spirit. The moral character remains unchanged. The person might pray, but if so, he asks God to do some great things for him in order to promote his own selfish purposes. He does not have the slightest intent of committing himself to God's interests so that he will from then on be in perfect affinity with God, desiring and seeking only God's interests and serving no interests other than God's. 
To illustrate this point, let us imagine that a parent would say to his children, I will give you my property if you will work with me and truly identify your interests with mine. If you are not willing to do this, I will disinherit you. Some of the children may take a perfectly selfish view of this offer and may say within themselves, I will do just enough for my father to get his money. I will make him think that I am very zealous for his interests, and I will do just enough to secure the offered rewards. But why should I do more than that? Imagine the case of a human government that offers rewards to offenders on condition of their returning to obedience. The real spirit of the offer goes to the length of asking for the sincere devotion of their hearts to the best good of the government. However, they may take a completely selfish view of the case and determine to accept the proposal only just far enough to secure the rewards, and only for the sake of the rewards. The ruler wants and expects the actual affinity of their hearts, their real goodwill. If this is given, the ruler would love to reward them most abundantly. But how can he be satisfied with them if they are entirely selfish? A person may be as selfish in praying as in stealing, and even far more wicked, for he may more grievously mock God and more impiously attempt to bribe the Almighty to promote his own selfish purposes. He may wrongly suppose that he can make the searcher of hearts work for his own benefit. He may brazenly try to induce him to play into his own hands, and so may most grievously tempt him to his face. The text affirms that the heart of men is fully set in them to do evil. Maybe some of you think otherwise. Maybe you don't believe in such depravity. That loving mother says, I think my daughter is friendly to religion. Do you think she is converted? No, not converted but I think she is approving of religion and feels favorably toward it. Does she meet the demands of God like a friend to his government and to his reputation? I cannot say she does. Ask her to repent, and what does she say? She will tell you she cannot. How remarkable is the fact that you can go through the different classes of society and you will meet people almost everywhere with this position. The sinner says he cannot repent and cannot believe. What is the matter? Where is the trouble? Go to that young woman who is thought to be so friendly to religion. She is so kind and gentle that she cannot bear to see any pain inflicted. But notice what happens. Present to her the claims of God, and what does she say? I cannot. I cannot obey God in one of his demands. I cannot repent of my sin. What is it about repentance that this kind lady, although so friendly to religion, would be incapable of repenting? What is the matter? 
Is God so unreasonable in his demands that he imposes upon you things that are quite impossible for you to do? Are you so indifferent to his feelings and so careless of the truth that for the sake of self-justification you will accuse him of the most flagrant injustice and falsely imply that the wrong is all on his side and none on yours? Is this a very gracious trait of character in you? Is this one of your proofs that the human heart is not fully set to do evil? You say that you cannot repent and love God. You find it quite impossible to make up your mind to serve and please God. What is the matter? Are there no sufficient reasons apparent to your mind why you should give up your heart to God? No reasons? Heaven, earth, and hell may all combine to pour upon you their reasons for fearing and loving God, and yet you cannot think of any. Why is this? It is because your heart is fully set within you to do evil rather than good. You are completely committed to the pleasing of self. Jesus may plead with you. Your friends may plead with you. Heaven and hell may lift up their united voices to plead with you. And every motive that can press on the heart from reason, conscience, hope, and fear, and from angels and devils, God and man, may pass in long and flashing array before your mind. But sadly, your heart is so fully set to do evil that no motive to change can move you. What is this cannot? It is not a cannot, but is nothing less or more than a mighty will not. That kind woman insists that she is not much depraved. She will not steal. It is true that her selfishness takes on a most tender and delicate type. She has the most profuse sensitivities. She cannot bear to see a kitten in distress. But what does she care for God's rights? What does she care for the rights of Jesus Christ? What does she care for God's feelings? What does she care for the feelings and sympathies of the crucified Son of God? She cares nothing at all. What then are her tender sensitivities worth? Doves and kittens have even more of this than she has. There is no doubt that she has many tender attachments, but they are all under the control of a perfectly selfish heart. Eve, too, was most gracious. Indeed, she was a truly pious woman before she sinned, and Adam no doubt thought she could be trusted everywhere. But notice how terribly she fell. Just as Eve fell, so did her daughters. Giving up their hearts to a refined selfishness, they repel God's most righteous claims, and they are fallen. You can go through all the levels of society and see the same thing. Go to the pirate ship with the captain armed to the teeth and the fire of hell in his eye. 
ask him to receive an offered Savior and repent of his sins, and he gives the very same answer as that gracious daughter does. He cannot repent. His heart, too, is so fully set within him to do evil that he cannot get his own consent to turn from his sins to God. Oh, this horrible compulsion of the heart to do evil! It is the only reason why the Holy Spirit is needed to change the sinner's heart. Except for this, you would no more need the Holy Spirit than an angel of light does. Oh, how terribly strong is the sinner's heart against God! Right where the demands of God come in, he seems to have almost unlimited strength to oppose and resist. The motives of truth may roll as high as the mountains and beat upon his iron heart. Yet see how he braces up his nerves to withstand God. What can he not resist rather than submit his will to God? Another thing is seen in this text, incidentally brought out, assumed but not affirmed, and that is that sinners are already under sentence. The text, Ecclesiastes 8.11, says, because sentence is not executed speedily, implying that sentence is already passed and only waits its appointed time to be carried out. You who have attended courts of justice know that after the trial and conviction comes the sentence. The criminal takes his seat on the bench. The judge arises. Everything is as still as death. The judge reviews the case and quickly comes to the solemn conclusion. You are convicted by this court of the crime alleged, and now you are to receive your sentence. Sentence is then delivered. After this solemn transaction, execution of the sentence is commonly deferred for a period of time according to the circumstances. The purpose may be either to give the criminal an opportunity to obtain a pardon, or, if there is no hope of this, at least to give him some days or weeks for serious reflection in which he may secure the peace of his soul with God. For such reasons, execution is usually delayed. However, after the sentence is given, the case is fully decided. No further doubt of guilt can intervene to affect the case. The possibility of pardon is the only remaining hope. The dreadful sentence seals his doom, unless it is possible that a pardon can be obtained. That sentence, how it sinks into the heart of the guilty criminal. You are now, says the judge, remanded to the place from where you came. You are to be kept there in irons under close confinement until the day appointed. Then you are to be taken forth from your prison cell between the hours of ten and twelve, as the case may be, and hung by the neck until you are dead. May God have mercy on your soul. The sentence has passed now. The court has done its work. 
all that remains is for the executioner of justice to do his work. And the fearful scene closes. This is how the Bible represents the case of the sinner. He is under sentence, but his sentence is not executed speedily. Some pause is given. The arrangements of the divine government require no court and no jury. The law itself says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die, Ezekiel 18.20, and Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, Galatians 3.10 so that the mandate of the law involves the sentence of law on every sinner, a sentence from which there can be no escape and no deliverance except by a pardon. What a position this is for the sinner! Next, consider another strange fact. Because sentence is not executed speedily, because there is some delay of execution, because mercy prevails to secure for the condemned criminal a few days' delay so that punishment will not tread close upon the heels of crime. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. How astounding! What a perversion and abuse of the gracious design of the king in granting a little delay from instant execution! Let us see how it would look in the case of our friend or neighbor. He has committed a terrible crime. He is arrested, put on trial, convicted, sentenced, and handed over to the warden to await the day and hour of his execution. The judge says, I delay the execution so that you may have opportunity to secure a pardon from the governor. I assure you that the governor is a most compassionate man. He loves to grant pardons. He has already pardoned thousands. If you will give up your spirit of rebellion, he will most freely forgive you. I beg you, therefore, that you will not try to attempt to justify yourself. Don't think of escaping death in any other way than by casting yourself upon his mercy. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that there can be any other refuge. Now suppose this man says, I have done nothing wrong, nothing at all. I am simply a martyr to truth and justice. Well, at least I have done nothing very bad, nothing that any government should notice. I don't believe I will be sentenced. The man is condemned already. I will live as long as the best of you. So he starts making excuses. He goes to work as if he were preparing for a trial and as if he expected to prove his innocence before the court. Maybe he even sets himself to oppose and curse the government, ranting against its laws and its officers, thinking nothing is too bad to say about them, indulging himself in the most outrageous opposition and criticizing the very men whose mercy has spared his forfeited life people would be shocked to see such a case, to see someone who would so disrespect all that is right and just 
as to give himself up to insult the government whose righteous laws he had just broken and then whose leniency he had most fragrantly disregarded. Yet this text of Ecclesiastes 8.11 affirms this to be the case of the sinner, and all observation sustains it. You have seen it demonstrated over and over again 10,000 times. You can look back and see it in your own case. You know it is all true, fearfully and terribly true. If it were revealed to you in some powerful and terrible manner tonight that your soul is damned, you would be stunned. You do not believe the simple declaration of God as it stands recorded on the pages of the Bible. You are continually saying to yourself, I will not be condemned in the end. I will continue along. I will dare to continue to tempt his patience. I do not at all believe he will send me to hell. At least I will continue on a while longer before I eventually turn around if I find it advantageous. But for now, why should I fear to set my heart fully in the way God has forbidden? Where will you find a parallel to such wickedness? Only think of a state of moral boldness that can abuse God's richest mercies, that can calmly say, God is so good that I will take advantage of Him all I can. God loves me so much that I will continue without fear to insult him and abuse his mercy and patience to the utmost hardening of my soul in sin and rebellion. Let each sinner observe that the day of execution is really set. God will not pass over it. When it arrives, there can be no more delay. God does not wait because he is in doubt about the justice of the sentence or because his heart is apprehensive in view of its terrible execution, but only that he may see if he can persuade you to embrace mercy. This is all. This is the only reason why judgment has lingered for such a long time and why the sword of justice has not long ago smitten you down. Here is another extraordinary fact. Not only has God delayed execution, but at immense cost He has provided means for the safe application of mercy. You know that it is naturally a dangerous thing to bestow mercy. There is so much danger that it may weaken the force of law and encourage people to trample it down in hope of impunity. However, God has provided a glorious testimony in favor of law, showing that it is in his heart to sustain it at every sacrifice. He could not forgive sin until his broken and dishonored law was honored before the universe. Having done all this in the sacrifice of his own son on Calvary, he can forgive without fear of consequences, provided that each candidate for pardon will first be truly repentant. Now, therefore, God's heart of mercy is opened wide 
and no fear of evil consequences from free pardons disturbs the exercise of mercy. Before atonement, justice stood with brandished sword, demanding vengeance on the guilty. But by and through the atoning blood, God rescued his law from danger. He lifted it up from beneath the defiled foot of the transgressor and set it on high in safety and glory. And now he opens wide the blessed door of mercy. Now he comes in the person of his Spirit and invites you in. He comes to your very heart and room, sinner, to offer you the freest possible pardon for all your sin. Do you hear that gentle knock at your door? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20 Look at those hands. Have they not been pierced? Do you know those hands? Do you know where they have been to be nailed completely through? Notice the hair wet with the dew. How long has he been kept outside? How long has he been waiting for the door to open? Who is it who comes? Is it the officer of justice? Has he come with his armed men to drag you away to execution? No. But one comes with the cup of mercy in his hands. He approaches your prison gate, his eye wet with the tear of compassion. Through the window of your door, he extends that cup of mercy to your parched lips. Do you see that face, disfigured more than any man's? Isaiah 52, 14. And are you only the more fully set to do evil? Young man, young woman, is this how your heart is toward the God of mercy? Where can we find anything similar to such guilt? Can it be found anywhere else in the universe except in this demented world? The scenes and activities on earth must inspire a wonderful interest in heaven. Angels desire to look into these things. 1 Peter 1.12 The whole universe looks on with inquisitive wonder to see what Christ has done and how the sinners for whom he has suffered and done all try to repay his amazing love. However, when they see you set your heart only the more fully to do evil, they stand back horrified at such unparalleled wickedness. What can be done for such sinners except 
leave them to the foolishness and doom of their choice. God has no other alternative. If you wrong Him, He must execute His law and its fearful sentence of eternal death. Suppose it were a human government and a similar situation occurs. Who does not see that government might as well abdicate at once as to refrain to punish? It is the same with God. Although He has no pleasure in the sinner's death, and although He will never slay you because He delights in it, yet how can He do otherwise than execute His law if He would uphold it? How can He justify Himself for any failure in sustaining it? Will you oppose Him and then flatter yourself that He will fail to execute His terrible sentence upon you? O oh, sinner, there is no possibility that you can pass the appointed time without execution. Human laws may possibly fail to be enforced, but God's laws can never fail. Who is it who says that their judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not? 2 Peter 2.3 Remarks 1. Let me ask those who profess to be true Christians. Do you think you believe these truths? Let me suppose that there is a father and mother reading this who have a child whom you know and acknowledge to be under sentence of death. You don't know this, but this is the very day and hour set for his execution. How do you feel? Does the knowledge and belief of such facts disturb your peace? The case of your children could now be infinitely worse than this. You know that eternal death in hell must be far more terrible than any public execution on earth. If your own son were under sentence for execution on earth, how would you feel? How then would you feel if you believed that he were under the far more terrible sentence of hell? Let us spread out this case a little. Place before you that aged father and mother. Their son went off to sea years ago. They have not seen him or even heard a word from him in a long time. How often have their troubled minds dwelt on his case? They do not know how he is, but they fear the worst. They had reason to know that his principles were not very well fixed when he left home, and they are afraid that he has fallen into worse and worse company and may now be a bold transgressor. As they are talking over these things and searching all the newspapers they can find from time to time to see if they can find some clue to their son's history, all at once the doorbell rings. A messenger hands a letter to the old father who takes it, breaks the seal, reads a word, and suddenly falls back in his seat. The letter drops from his hand. 
He can't read it. The mother wonders what happened, and she asks her husband about it. She rushes forward and grabs the fallen letter. She reads a word, and her heart breaks with agony. What is the matter? Their son is sentenced to die and he wrote to see if his father and mother can come and see him before he dies. In the early morning they are off. The sympathetic neighbors gather around. They are all sorrowful, for it is a sad thing, and they feel it sharply. The parents hurry away to the prison and learn the details of the painful case. They see at once that there can be no hope of release except in a pardon. The governor lives nearby. They rush to his house, but sad for them, they find him stern and immovable. With palpitating and heavy hearts, they plead and plead, but all seems to be in vain. He says, Your son has been so wicked and has committed such crimes that he must be hung. The good of the nation demands it, and I cannot allow my sympathies to overrule my sense of justice and my convictions of the public good. But the agonized parents must hold on. What a conflict is in their minds! How the case burns upon their hearts! At last the mother breaks out and says, Sir, are you a father? Do you have a son? Yes, one son. Where is he? He has gone to California. How long has it been since you have heard from him? Suppose he too should fall. Suppose you were to feel such grief as ours and have to mourn over a fallen son. The governor finds himself to be a father. All the dormant affections of the father's heart are stirred within him. Calling to his private secretary, he says to make out a pardon for their son. Oh, what a flood of emotions they pour out! All this is very natural. No one considers this strange at all. However, Compare this to the case of the sinner condemned to an eternal hell. If your spiritual ears were opened, you would hear the chariot wheels rolling with the great judge coming in his chariot of thunder. You would see the sword of death gleaming in the air, ready to smite down the hardened sinner. However, hear the professedly Christian father pray for his ungodly son. He thinks he should pray for him once or twice a day, so he begins. But he has almost forgotten his subject. He hardly knows or thinks what he is praying about. God says, Pray for your dying son. Lift up your cries for him while mercy still lingers and pardon can be found. Where are the Christian parents who pray for their children as for a sentenced and soon-to-be-executed son? They say they believe the Bible, but do they? 
Do they act as if they believed even half of its terrible truths about sentenced sinners ready to go down to an eternal hell? Yet notice how they feel and how they act as soon as they are spiritually awake. What is wrong with that professing Christian who has no spirit of prayer and no power with God? He is an unbeliever. Something is wrong when God says that your child is sentenced to die and his angel of death may come in one hour and cut him down in his guilt and sin and send his spirit quickly to hell and yet the father or mother have no urgency in the case. They are unbelievers. They do not believe what God has said. 2. Here is another situation. Suppose that these distressed parents have gone to the governor. They have poured out their griefs before him and have at last wrestled a pardon from his stern hands. They rush from his house toward the prison, so delighted that they scarcely touch the ground. As they approach the prison, they hear songs of cheer, and they say, Our son must be agonized with company and seen so improper and so disagreeable. The parents meet the warden and ask him who can sing so happily in a prison. The warden answers, It is your own son. He has no idea that he is to be executed. He is promising to burn down the governor's house. Indeed, he has a most determined spirit, as if his heart were fully set on evil. That is distressing, they say. But we can restrain his wicked and proud heart. We will show him the pardon and tell him how the governor feels. We are sure this will subdue him. He cannot withstand such kindness and compassion. They go to the door of the prison cell. They enter and show their son the pardon. They tell him how much it cost them and how tenderly the governor feels in the case. He seizes it, tears it to pieces, and tramples it under his feet. His parents think that he must be deranged. However, it is only depravity of the heart, and they come to realize it and know that this must be the case. They cry out, This is worst of all. What? Not willing to be pardoned? Not willing to be saved? This is worse than all the rest. Well, we must go to our desolate home, we are done trying to save our son. We obtained a pardon for him with our tears, but he will not accept it. There is nothing more than we can do. They turn sadly away, not caring even to bid him farewell. They go home doubly saddened, not only because he deserved to die for his original crimes, but also for his yet greater crime of refusing the offered pardon. The day of execution comes. The prison guard is on hand to do his duty. 
he escorts the prisoner from his cell to the place of execution. The witnesses crowd around and follow sadly along. Suddenly a messenger rushes up and says to the criminal, You have torn in pieces one pardon, but here is another one. Will you accept this? With proud disdain, the condemned prisoner rejects even this last offer of pardon. Where are the sympathies of all the land now? Do they say, How cruel to hang a young man and for only such a crime? No, they say no such thing at all. They see the need for law and justice. They know that a law so insulted must be allowed to vindicate itself in the criminal's execution. The warden now proclaims just fifteen minutes to live. Even during these minutes, the criminal insults the governor and the dignity of law. The fateful moment arrives. He trembles for a minute under the grasp of death. And all is still forever. He is gone. And the law has been sustained in the fearful execution of its sentence. All the people feel that this is righteous. They cannot possibly think otherwise. Even those aged parents do not have a word of complaint to utter. They approve the governor's course of action. They endorse the sentence. They say, We thought that he would accept the pardon, but since he would not, let him be accursed. We love good government. We love the blessings of law and order in society more than we love iniquity and crime. He was indeed our son, but he was also the son of the devil. Now let us attend the execution of some of these sinners from our own congregation. You are sent for to face execution. We see the messenger and we hear the sentence read. We see that your fatal hour has come. Will we turn and curse God? No, we will do no such thing. When you are hung and you gasp and die and your guilty, terror-stricken soul goes wailing down the sides of the pit, will we go away to complain of God and of His justice? No. Why not? Because you could have had mercy, but you would not. Isaiah 30.15, Jeremiah 6.16, Matthew 23.37. God waited on you patiently, but your heart only became more fully set to do evil. The universe looks on and sees the facts in the case, and with one voice that rings through the vast arch of heaven they cry, 
just and righteous you are in all your ways, most holy Lord God. Revelation 15.3 Who says this is cruel? Will the universe take up arms against God? No. When the universe gathers together around the great white throne and the dreadful sentence goes forth, Depart, accursed! And away they move in dense and vast masses as if the old ocean had begun to flow away. Down, down they sink to the depths of their dark home. Then the saints with firm step and solemn heart will proclaim, God's law is vindicated. The insulted majesty of both law and mercy is now upheld in honor, and all is right. Heaven is solemn, but joyful. Saints are solemn, yet they cannot help rejoicing in their own glorious Father. See the multitudes of people as they move up to heaven. They look back over the plains of Sodom and see the smoke of her burning ascend up like the smoke of a great furnace, Genesis 19.28. But they pronounce it just and do not have one word of complaint to utter. To the sinner who is still living, I say today that the hour of your execution has not yet arrived. Once more, the bleeding hand offers mercy's cup to your lips. Think for a moment. Your Savior now offers you mercy. Come now and accept what will you say? I will go on still in my sins. Then all we can say is that the heart of divine love is deeply moved for you, that God has done all to save you that he wisely can do. God's people have felt a deep and agonizing interest in you and are ready now to cry, How can we give them up? But what more can we do? What more can even God do? Mercy has followed you with bleeding heart and quivering lip. Jesus himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Will Jesus see you, weep over you, and say, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now, 
they are hid from thine eyes. Luke 19.42 What will you say, dying sinner? Your response should be, It is enough. I have dashed away salvation's cup long and wickedly enough. You do not need to say another word. Oh, that bleeding hand, those weeping eyes. Is it possible that I have withstood a Savior's love so long? I am ready to beg for mercy now, and I rejoice to hear that our God has a Father's heart. He knows you have sinned greatly and grievously, but His compassions have been bleeding and flowing forth toward you these many days. Will you accept at once the terms of mercy and come to Jesus? What do you say? Suppose an angel comes down in robes, pure and white, unrolls his scroll, and produces a pardon in your name, sealed with Jesus' own blood. He opens the sacred book and reads the very passage that reveals the love of God. Then he asks you if you will believe and embrace it. What will you do? What will I say to my Lord and Master? When I come to report the matter, must I give my testimony that you would not hear? When Christ comes so near to you and would willingly draw you close to His warm heart, what will you do? Will you still repeat the fatal choice to reject His love and defy His dishonored justice?